the blessing that's ours to come together on this Lord's Day morning is certainly not something that passes by us too quickly. For we understand how many forces there seem to be at work in the world in which we live, forces that cause challenges to those who would strive to live faithful to the marvelous and wonderful God of heaven. In fact, I would ask in light of the lesson's title today that I know that we typically you know, simply watch the songs that, are, that uh, scroll by on the wall behind me. But I am going to make reference, at least at the outset of the lesson, to one of the songs in that book. So if you'd like to go ahead and be taking your songbook, I will invite your attention to some of the wording that occurs in light of one, if not two, of the songs. With that said, the lesson is entitled today, God's Personal Love. And the title I designed in such a way that it would set before us in many ways the fullness of what I hope that we can discuss together this morning. The love of God. Now on occasion as that subject is discussed, there's much that surely can be said about it. And the fullness of those comments could often be directed in some rather impressive ways. But today I want us to take a very personal thrust in regard to that love. In fact, the songs to which I would direct your attention, first of all, song number 646. 646, the title is The Love of God. We have sung that song here at Pippin. It is not one of the frequent ones that we sing, but nonetheless, it's probably one that the wording will be at least somewhat familiar, but I would invite you to notice it is one of the most poetic songs, in my opinion, that's to be found in the book anywhere. Listen as I read the words of this song that describes the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the high star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. Verse 2. When hoary time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall. When men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hill and mountains call. God's love so sure shall still endure, all measure less and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Verse 3. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? And then the chorus goes like this, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Now that particular song, as I've just pointed out, has much to say about the love of God. And maybe sometimes we're guilty as we sing the songs that we habitually know what they say and don't reflect on them as richly as we might. May we never forget that even in our song service, we are worshiping God, and Paul could say, I'll sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. So may we understand the words that we're saying to God in worship. On the very next page is another song with the same title. This one we have sung more often in days gone by. 
without reading all of it, you know the sentence and the sense that's going to be presented, how great the love of God is. I would say all of that just as an introduction, that the love of God is certainly not something we're going to plumb the depths of in the next 25 to 30 minutes. But there is at least an aspect of it that's very rich, very meaningful, and rather amazing. And it is the personal characteristic of God's love. Let's develop that in some detail this morning. And I hope that as we come to the close of this time, we will be more invigorated than ever to appreciate not only that nature of God's love, but what it means for us. Practically and daily, what does it mean? This opening slide, or the one that's next, is just a reflection on the love of God presented using the Bible as our strong reference and guide. You'll notice at the very top of that, the Word of God, of course, has much to say about the topic of love in general. And sometimes that discussion is such that among the over 500 uses of that word, you'll notice many of them are of this character. Individuals love for each other. Sometimes it's a husband for a wife, or a wife for a husband, or maybe parents for children, or maybe just generally the description of love for other people in the human family. Wasn't it true that many of the New Testament writers would assert love one another? That's one of John's favorite presentations in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. No new commandment we have, but rather, as John would say it, you love one another. So we know those verses highlight for us the love we have to fellow Christians. But may I say there are other verses that speak, of course, about our love for God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, to borrow the words of Mark 12, verse 30. That verse, among many others, could easily remind us about how pertinent that thought is. But the idea of our lesson today is neither of them. The idea of our lesson turns more around this idea. What about God's love for us? What about the fact that this majestic, infinite being loves us, mortal, fallible, sinful creatures? That's certainly an amazing consideration, isn't it? And yet, in light of it, how much the Word of God has to say about it. Let's journey through the last few elements on that slide and perhaps begin with this thought. John specifically stated that God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. In English, we understand that statements like that are identifying by, by definition and presentation that the subject is identified by that which is presented as the predicate adjective. God and love are thus asserted in a very amazing fashion to the point where any embodiment of love is due to God. It is the idea of His essence. It is His nature. But to say that God is love is immediately to ring to our appreciation several verses, one of which no doubt should be this one, God so loved the world, John 3.16. But just could be said about that little adverb, so. He so loved that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, 
God's love manifested to the world, may I suggest that it could be tempting at that point to see that word world and say, well, the Lord died for this mass of eight, somewhat over eight billion people walking on the planet. Well, it's true, He did. But it says more than that. You and I are a part of the eight billion. You and I individually are a part of that group. And the principal thrust of this lesson, God loved me and He loved you individually, identically. He loved each of us in a personal way. It is not that we should simply view His love as this broad universal presentation as useful sometimes as that might be, practically, it means so much more when on a daily basis we can remember, God loved me. The Lord died for me. It could well be in that light that the last couple of verses on that slide perhaps indicate the magnitude of this. Isn't His love portrayed as being so great? Romans 5 verse 8 still says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you notice Paul did have an element of personal character in that? He identified that we were His enemies, each one of us, because we were guilty of sin, and yet He died for us anyway. Should it not be fairly said in that connection, in that light, that will pay great dividends for us, Surely as we close this lesson, we'll learn several principles and things that can be very helpful to us in that light. Let's close that slide then like this. The demonstration of God's love is so evident. It's not just abstractly He said, I love you. He showed it. He demonstrated it. He exhibited it. Isn't that what Paul asserted? He said He commended His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Every time we read the gospel accounts in which the details are presented concerning the Lord's journey to Calvary and that which took place when He arrived there, it should be an ever-present and constant reminder, I'm the one that sent Him there. I'm the one that forced His journey to that location and I'm the one that caused Him to endure it. It is a great statement indeed. To make it a personal matter, for it really helps us realize the enormity of sin and how important it is to avoid it. As we close that slide then, why don't we turn our attention to a number of verses that develop this point more clearly. How do we know that God's love is personal? How do I know that He loves me individually? And of course, the same for you. Well, the fact is, the Word of God has a number of things to say about it. One by one, as we look at a few of these, could I at least begin with maybe a common example that might show how important this is? Isn't it true in the world in which we live that places of business, if at all possible, desire to place their business in such a way that there's a personal tone to it? Think about a bank. If a bank can leave the impression, you're not just a number here. We know you by name. We are aware of your concerns and your needs in life, and we will be here to ensure that your needs are met personally. That means something to us. Schools and universities try that. 
the place that I work tries to give the impression, look, as a student who comes here, you are not just a faceless name. We know who you are. Our professors are aware of your needs and circumstances in life, and we will go out of our way to be mindful of that and seek to fulfill those needs. Whether it be a university, a bank, any other place, there is typically a tremendous value attached to a personal characteristic involved in it. Should it be any less in regard to God's love? It is one thing entirely to discuss God's love in a universal sense. But I'd suggest that in terms of practical value, it's something indifferent to attach it to me personally. The Lord loves me. So over the last half of that slide or so, let's look at a few verses. One of them, Brother Dennis read just a few moments ago in your hearing. Could I ask you to revisit John the 10th chapter? In the opening verses of John chapter 10, Jesus in speaking said this, Verily I, verily I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. If we pause there just a moment, we realize the Lord is about to say, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the one who watches after the character and the nature of the sheep. In that light, did you note then the language of verse 3? To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name. There it is. Now you and I know a name is an individual thing, and the Lord calls his sheep by name. My name's not the same as yours, and yours isn't the same as mine. And he referred to the sheep by name. May we never forget then that He is mindful of our individual circumstances. He's mindful of the particular afflictions and difficulties we face. He called His sheep by name. He goes on then to say this, and leads them out. Now the Lord issues just what each one needs. And here is He called the sheep by name. It is a tremendous reminder, isn't it? that Jesus was mindful of the situations of each of the sheep. But let's read even further. In Matthew chapter 10, there's probably a well-known passage. It's one that we've often reflected upon, sometimes humorously, but the message behind it is far more serious than that. In that context, identifying, among other things, the nature of God's mindfulness, He said, "...the very hairs of your head are numbered." Who among us knows the number of hairs on our head? I venture to say, unless the number is zero, not any of us know the number. The point is, the God of heaven above is so knowledgeable of the affairs and circumstances of your life and mine that even the number of the hairs on your head are known to Him. Perhaps not to you or me, but to Him. Doesn't that one more time remind us, if he is aware of something that might be seen as that trivial, what about all the other things of my life? Is he aware of the struggles I face? Is he aware of the particular circumstances and challenges which might make mine unique from any other people that I know? Absolutely. 
It is to that thought, I might add, the following. It's for that reason that in Acts 27, that when it came to that shipwreck that Paul and a number of others endured on that Mediterranean Sea, that there was a reference to, not a hair of your head shall be damaged or fall. How did Paul know that? How did Paul know that in the terribleness of a shipwreck, as they would ultimately come to land and have to wade through water to get to the land, not a single hair of anybody's head would be damaged. Now God had told him, but for God to know that, wasn't that an impression of just what God knows? God knows, you see, the things of your life and mine, and His love is extended to us in a very personal way. God's love is such that, just as love is by definition, He wants the absolute best for each individual. That's what love is by its very nature. For that reason, one last verse on that slide will then be this one. We've looked at John chapter 10 and at least highlighted some of the features of the beginning part of that chapter. But isn't it rather fascinating then to observe that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Now, if God loves me personally, He knows then each day that which I face, and He knows what I'm tempted to say. He knows what I do actually say. He knows what thoughts cross my mind, and same for you, of course. But He knows where I go, and He knows what my motivations are, and He knows what my incentives are. He knows whether my love is genuine or not. And His love for me means that in every situation, personally, He wants what's the best for me. To make all of that a little bit more concrete, I think at this point a valiant lesson might be noted. May we not simply think of God's love as this general thing that is in the best interest of everybody at once. He loves me personally. And had there been no other sinner on earth, the Lord would have gone to the cross anyway if I had been the only one. If you had been the only one. Because the Lord shed His blood, and you and I as sinners are those which drove Him to do that which He did. But He loves me individually, and He does you too. There are several consequences of that. And the first one that I would suggest that you consider with me will be an immediate development. To prepare you for it, look at these final observations. If God loves us individually, then have you ever thought about it in this light? There are differing levels of faith, differing levels, if you please, of knowledge and commitment. Some people have a faith that's weak. Others have a faith that's strong. Jesus even said that. And yet, if it's true that we're about to note in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. How can that be appreciated unless it is seen uniquely? My lot in life is not the same as yours, and yours isn't the same as mine. And yet none of us are ever put in a position whereby the temptation shall be more than that which we can successfully bear. Doesn't that again indicate a personal appreciation on the part of God for each one of us? 
in our station, in our faithfulness, and in our lot of life. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? It is with that in mind, that, that next statement. We know that the judgment, of course, shall be meted out individually. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, to use the words of Romans 14, 12. All of that, doesn't it remind us that God's love is dispensed with a very personal thrust to it? May we never then think of God's love as some distant matter that doesn't touch you and I individually. It does. He loves me, and He wants me to be saved. He wants me to go to heaven, and He wants you there too. So every day, that ought to have a bearing on the way that I live my life. It ought to have some implications. And maybe three of them are these. Let's look at them one at a time. Perhaps adding some commentary along the way, highlighting the emphases that perhaps you would expect. The first one is this one. If God loves me, making it personal, then that means you and I as individuals have personal value. We have personal worth. We ought never think that we're worthless, that we're meaningless, that it does not matter. We all know that the current rate of suicide in our land has reached epic proportions. By some means, individuals have been led to believe my life means nothing here. My life, perhaps due to some sicknesses or illnesses or otherwise, but in many cases motivated by simply the thought of worthlessness. But the Bible has a very different message to share, doesn't it? Each person is individually worthwhile. And one of the grand reasons for that, God loves me. He loves me. He loves you. Regardless of the circumstances or statuses in life, it doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. And there are many on our world who certainly have made a lot. And they continue to thrive in them. But in that state, it's not healthy for them. Perhaps in the near term and certainly in the long term. And God wants what's best. His love mandates that He wants things to be the best for you and for me. That means that the personal value that you'll see at the top of that slide, first of all, lead me to ask you to note a few verses. How often does the Bible remind those of that day, and certainly we today as well, love thy neighbor as thyself. The latter part of that verse is maybe easy to overlook. It demands I love myself. Did you note that point? Paul reiterated it later in Ephesians 5. No man hates his own body, he would say, in Ephesians 5, 28 and following, but rather cherishes and loves it. We have a regard to self-love, obviously, but these verses teach us God loves us. And the personal nature of that highlights we should appreciate the worth that God attaches to us. You and I were so worthwhile, Jesus went to the cross for me, for you. May we never think that we don't matter. May we never think that we are not important in the grand scheme of things to God. For that just isn't so. That personal worth perhaps brings us to the second observation. 
not only is that personal worthwhile character to be noted, but let's return to a point we made earlier in the lesson. No, businesses have a reason for being able to couch their existence in a personal way because it gains a degree of loyalty between them and their customer. Is it any different for us? If you and I understand that God loves me personally, that He has given of Himself personally, that He has invested in the relationship with me personally, then I should invest in it in exactly the same way that I will invest in it that same way, and thus my loyalty to Him will be greater. My devotion to Him will be stronger. My commitment to Him will be firmer. That's one of the things that love should drive within you and within me. In Psalm 116, verse number 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all His faithfulness to me? David made it very personal, didn't he? To me, the Lord has been mindful. And what will I render to Him? Shouldn't that be a question on our hearts as well? What shall I render unto the Lord for all His faithfulness to me? Surely we know the Bible says that in the aspect of rendering to Him, He demands our faithfulness to Him. Look at verses like 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. You see, He extended His love to me when I was a woeful sinner, when I was outside faithfulness to Him, and yet He loved me anyway. We realize in so many ways how that that's an important component. When a child realizes that a parent loves him or her, and they may discipline, in fact they must, but it doesn't change the fact that the parent loves them And when a child feels and experiences that love, it brings to them a sense of fidelity, a sense, if you please, of comfort, knowing they are secure, provided for by those who have their best interest at the utmost of consideration. Didn't God do that for us? He gave everything. He gave the prized possession, if you please, of heaven. Surely it demands our devotion to Him. In 1 John 4, 11, earlier in that same chapter, the inspired writer one more time reminded us that because of His love for us, we thus are devotedly in love with Him, to Him. Having said all of that, one last point on the slide. Discipline. This is perhaps the most challenging part of this slide that's now before you. Because after all, we know very well, just as we mentioned a moment ago, that when a parent disciplines a child, it's not pleasant, it's not fun. Sometimes children, I suspect, have a misunderstanding of this. Maybe they think dad and mom like this. Any parent that has been through it knows well it's no fun. But you know it's in the best interest of your child. There is some behavior in which they've engaged, and you know that for their best interest, you do not want that behavior repeated. You do not want them to come to appreciate that that's the way things are done. And therefore, you discipline. Perhaps with a belt. Perhaps with a switch. Perhaps with some other matter that leaves an impression as to the severity of what's done. 
But the fact is that discipline was done motivated not by abuse, but by concern for the best interest of the child. Would you be turning with me to Hebrews chapter 12? If God loves you and me personally, then would we anticipate that there is a degree of discipline that He extends personally? We all know that if a family has more than one child, you don't discipline every child, every one of the children, exactly the same way. They may not all have been guilty of the same thing. And you respond to their considerations in an individual way. Let's begin reading in Hebrews 12, verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children... My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The discipline of the Lord. The text there says, if God loves you, he'll discipline you. You and I should anticipate an individual degree to this, meaning that in His infinite assessment and wisdom of those who are His children, He will mete out degrees and considerations relative to their behavior that brings about the chastening of the Lord. As the chapter goes onward, you might jump down a few verses with me. Verse 11 will say, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Discipline's not fun. I can remember more than once being on the receiving end from my parents and grandparents. I never enjoyed a minute of it. I'm sure you didn't enjoy what aspect of that you had either. Am I thankful for it now? Am I appreciative of the concern they had to attempt to instill within me a lasting knowledge of this is not the way to do things and this is not acceptable? I certainly am and I suppose you are too. But here the inspired writer points out to the Hebrews, those Christians who had come out of Hebrew extraction... They were being reminded that there was a degree of discipline concerning the nature of what ought and ought not to have been done. Did you note again, the chastening of the Lord is for those He loves. So we should anticipate that the personal nature of God's love will incorporate and even utilize elements in discipline. Doesn't that mean that we can see a beautiful application of that even in our relationships in the church? We've often thought, and it's highlighted for us in 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll close our lesson with a pair of verses from that chapter having to do with the degree of discipline described in that place. Would you start with me in verse number 5 of that chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As I read this, be on guard for references to the love of God, as we've studied today, but then note the application that's presented. First, verse 5, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. 
that verse seems so delightfully positive. May the Lord direct your heart into the love of God. That's a sweet thought, isn't it? That day by day we may grow to the appreciation of knowing even better the love of God and living in harmony with what it states. But it continues in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Almost in the same breath, Paul says, this love of God into which I want you to be motivated by service, now leads me to say this, the act of love will require that for those who are intent to live in sin, that Christian who is just bound to remain in that kind of life, you know that that's not in their best interest. You know it's not. For if they continue to live that way, they're going to lose their soul. And the last element in love, you withdraw from them as a testimony that you don't approve of what they're doing and that you want the absence of that fellowship to bring them back to what they once enjoyed. The whole act, you see, of withdrawing fellowship as the New Testament describes it is a premier act in love in the best interest of those who are choosing to live in a way that's not in their best interest. As we close this lesson, thinking about God's personal love, may we summarize it in a very brief way like this. God loves you and me individually. And so many verses testify to the sweetness of that thought. He'll never allow us to be tempted above what we're able. He knows us by name. And He is even such that, as we've just noted, he will, in fact, discipline us accordingly to what is in our best needfulness. Today, what about you and me? Do we appreciate His love on a personal level? I trust we do, for the Bible highlights it, it seems, so strongly. It gives us self-value and reiterates the worth that God sees in us. It also highlights so strongly the aspect of our devotion to Him. If He loves us that way, shouldn't we respond by loving Him? Sure we should. And our faithful service and obedience to Him will thus be a natural matter. Finally, the element in discipline was so powerfully seen as well. It could be that in this assembly today, there's someone who's never become a Christian. You realize that's not in your best interest. If you continue to live that way and you die that way, what hope will you have? None. Ephesians 2.12 says you are without hope. Jesus died for you that you might not only avoid hell, but go to heaven to know the bliss and the sweetness of that place. If today we could thus remind you of the gospel plan of salvation, see the cross and note what the Lord demands. Believe in Him. Believe that He was who He said He was and went to the cross anyway. Turn away from sin. The Bible calls it repentance. Make a verbal confession that He is the Son of God and the Lord of your life from this point forward. And then be plunged beneath the surface of water, the Bible calls it baptism, in which you reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you are united with Him 
Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. If today we could assist you in that way, what a delightful birthday spiritually for you it would be. If you have known faithfulness to the Lord, but maybe you've lost sight of His love, you've thought that maybe He cares no longer for you, that's not so. He will never stop loving you. He wants you to love Him in return. He knows that's the best for you, and thus He wants you to be obedient. Faithfully so, because through this life it will give you the needful anchor and will prepare you for a home in heaven. Today, if you are a person who has walked away from the Lord, your life has brought shame upon the name of Christ, upon the church, maybe even brought hurtfulness to your family, you need to come back to your first love. See one more time the cross and His love for you. The Lord is pleading with you to come back to your first love. Revelation 2.5 Today, if we could help you in that way, we'd love to do that. For together we stand and while we sing.